If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast, part of the Over the Monster Network. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. It's a grand slam. I'm telling you. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Keaton DeRocher of Over the Monster. Keaton, welcome back to the show. It's been a little bit. It has. It's also nice to have some kind of like concrete subjects to talk about rather than kind of grasping at straws and labor negotiations. Yeah, it's way better to actually talk about real baseball. Um, so yeah, I, I totally agree there. Uh, a little bit of an unusual week this week. It is Keaton and I uh, coming to you. Uh, we usually wouldn't be coming to you until next week, but uh, I'm filling in for Matt today. Uh, so you get an extra week of me. Lucky you. Um, and last week on the show, Matt and I discussed uh, kind of all the news that was coming out about what we knew about this upcoming season that was uh, kind of forced by Rob Manfred, right? I, I hesitated to say agreed to, uh, but the players did have to agree to some safety protocols and things like that. Um, but as you listen to the show, it is July 1st, uh, the day that camp is supposed to open up, and teams actually had to submit their initial rosters, which could be up to 60 players, 
that are going to be part of their player pool, uh, their 40-man roster slash taxi squad. Um, and, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, a lot of the teams that submitted these didn't actually submit full ones because there's a little bit of leeway on how you can actually add uh, players to, to these a little bit later. Um, so the Red Sox actually submitted theirs, and when they did it, it was 47 players. And we're going to talk a lot about that today uh, on the show and, and kind of go through that. Um, but the Red Sox will be able to add more to that to get up to 60 if they would like to. We did mention last week on the show, though, that the roster size is going to vary. Uh, it's going to be 30-man active rosters at the top. And then after a couple weeks, it's going to drop down to a 28. And then a couple weeks after that uh, to 26. Um, so on today's show, what you can look forward to is Keaton and I actually built out our own 30-man rosters um, based off of that 47-player pool. Uh, plus, Jonathan Lucroy was in there because that guy is going to be added to that as soon as his contract is worked out. Uh, and then we're going to answer some listener questions for you as well. Um, so, uh, Keaton, before we get into the actual baseball stuff, uh, how is life going for you? It's going okay. Now, it perked up a bit when we got uh, the news of a potential Major League Baseball season, but I still remain rather skeptical whether it'll happen. And then we had the news today that there's no minor league season. Mm. And I think we kind of assumed that was going to happen, but then it did. Now I'm worried about my my Portland Sea Dogs and uh, whether or not they'll survive. I hope that they will. There's uh, a lot of stuff on Twitter about teams that probably won't survive uh, an entire year or will have to either fold or be sold. And I am... Uh, Partially convinced that the MLB was hoping that would happen so they can do their little contraction bullcrap, uh, but then also hoping that the, that does not does not hit my beloved Portland Sea Dogs. Yeah, I hope not either. Uh, Portland's one of the best places in all of the minor leagues to go to, and we're lucky to have that as, as our local AA club around here. So I agree with you, and I, I think that is worth mentioning that point that you said about the contraction because MLB did have that plan to contract 42 minor league teams uh, before all this hit. And uh, I actually, before we got on the podcast, I got the email on my phone from the Lowell spinners uh, updating us on, you know, the season being canceled. And that's one of the teams that was on the chopping block. So you're right, Keaton, it, it has um, made it much easier for, EMLB to go through with this plan, and I think that they're at this point. Uh, I would be shocked if it's just those, like if not all of those forty-two teams get contracted. I think it's like a foregone conclusion; those forty-two teams are gone. I wouldn't even be shocked if they ended up going beyond that because of the fact that some of these teams just aren't going to be solvent. Yeah, I agree. That wouldn't surprise me either. Yeah, which is quite a damn shame. Yeah, it is. It's a it's a raw deal for fans of minor league baseball. So hopefully, um, you know that works out. We we really like going to minor league baseball games around here. So and it's you know honestly, if you're going with a family too, it's like the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, so much cheaper. All right, so let's get right to it. Um, the thirty man active rosters in these sixty man rosters. Um, you know they're. It's a little bit confusing, um, but I want to read some of the rules 
um, that have come out about these 60-man rosters. And so essentially, um, the roster can consist of players who are on the 40-man and anyone else that the team chooses to add. However, uh, those two groups of players are not treated in the same way. So I'm going to read from the operations manual, and then I'm going to read a little bit from the Fangraphs summary of this as well. It says, 40-man roster players may be removed from the club player pool by an approved trade, a waiver claim, return of a Rule 5 selection, release, outright assignment, designation for assignment, placement on the 60-day IL, placement on the COVID-related injured list, or placement on the suspended list, uh, and a, a couple other things that don't usually come up. Um, so that's for 40-man players. For non-40-man roster players to be removed from a club player pool, they can be by trade, release, placement on the COVID-related injured list, military, volunteered, all those things that I didn't read on the other one. So uh, essentially what this means, uh, Fangraph summed sum this up well, is basically once a player is in the pool, the only way they can be removed from it, barring injury and a few other roster oddities, is to allow every other team to get a shot at them, either through waivers or free agency. If you see someone named to the 60-man player pool, it's a pretty good chance they'll be on the club for the duration of the season. So all of this is to say, Keaton, that that's one of the reasons why the Red Sox did not go ahead and name 60 players right away. They wanted to give themselves a little bit of freedom to add to that player pool uh, over time because these choices that they made with this 40-man pool, they're pretty set in stone. Yep. I'd say so. I think Tampa might have been the only team that went all the way to 60 and their organization is significantly deeper than just about everybody else's. So they probably had to make some tough decisions to get to their 60. I don't think it was tough for the Red Sox to get to 47. Yeah, I agree. Um, I Yeah, <laughs> I think the Red Sox, uh, Red Sox have a lot of guys on here. And as we were going through just trying to pull out guys from the 47-man uh, roster that they already submitted to make our list for the 30-man, we realized that there was a whole bunch of pitchers that if they were to be taken off of this 60-man player pool, like maybe the organization wouldn't care that much. They're not that big of a deal, right? Yeah. And the, and there, there's a real solid handful of guys like at the, at the bottom of the list of the relievers that – probably are not going to be given a look by other teams either. So I don't think there's much of a risk removing them from the pool. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's kind of worth talking about with this pool of players that they added here, because we didn't actually go through and talk about the larger pool of players and, and we can do that just briefly. There's a, you know, aside from the regular suspects that you'd expect in the outfield, there's a couple depth guys, John Andrioli and Cesar Puelo in that group. There's middle infield depth in uh, Yairo Munoz, uh, CJ Chatham, Bobby Dahlbeck, um, who none of those guys, I believe, made our roster projection for our 30 man. Uh, at catcher, Jet Bandy, Juan Centeno, Connor Wong are on that list of players. Um, and then there's like a ton of interchangeable 
um, you know, relievers uh, and very little in the way of starters. But one of the things I wanted to point out was that, you know, notable and, and missing from that are some of the better prospects uh, in the system that we may still yet see get named to this team. Um, and there's been a lot of speculation about them getting named to the team eventually. Um, but they have yet to, to, to get named. So guys that I'm talking about, I'm talking about Casas, I'm talking about Downs and Mata. And I don't believe Groom was on that list either, uh, if I remember nope, correctly. Nope, he was not. Yeah, he was not. Um, Jay Groom, uh, Jaron Duran, Tanner Houck not being on that list. Um, Thad Ward. Um, trying to go down here a little bit more. Those are really the ones that super stuck out to me. Um, the guys that are kind of in the high minors um, and could contribute at some point this year. I expect that those players will. And you're seeing a lot of top prospects get added to these 60-man player pools um, because these guys, like, they have to play. This is a huge deal for minor leaguers to miss uh, an entire season of development. And I was listening to the MLB pipeline podcast today with, with Jim Callis. And he was making a point that like, I mean, what do you do with a top prospect pitcher? Like, you know, let's just say, I think the example he was using was like a Casey Mize type, you know, if he threw a hundred innings last year, I mean, you want to get him close to that this year in some way, shape or form, uh, because, Next year, like, what do you do with them? You you back that guy down to like 80 innings, you know, it's really going to affect the development of pitchers who rely on sort of building up their workloads. So specifically with some of these Red Sox guys and Mata and Groom and, and the like, Thad Ward, I mean, you kind of hope that they're going to be somewhere uh, getting work in, especially Groom, because they have a rule five decision to make on him this upcoming winter. Yeah, he's one that stuck out, um, particularly trying to build him back up now, I think two years removed from Tommy John. Um, this is like that two years removed, that 18 to 24 months is typically when um, we've seen guys be able to kind of ramp back up to uh, as healthy as they were before. And that's a pretty critical stretch for someone like Groom who's developing uh, versus somebody who's like been an established major leaguer, a bit older. Um, has kind of had seasons of 180, 200 innings already. Uh, they're still building him up and building up his development, and he needs to know how to pitch with a healthy arm. So that's that's pretty tough to try and kind of make that concession. So I think that's a big part of the, the gap from the 47 to 60 is probably going to be those guys because that essentially is the, the taxi squad is essentially the, the minor league season, and those guys need to get work. So there's, I think there's enough room for them that it won't really compromise anything for them, like uh, for the Red Sox. If some of these 30-man guys that we have go down, I don't think like, oh, man, I wish we would have had that middle reliever now instead of uh, I don't know, Jay Groom, who is not quite ready for the majors. I don't right. think that's going to come back and bite him in the butt. And But I think they've got like this, this core 47 is a pretty solid core to start, but I would definitely expect the Downses, the Grooms, and the like to be the ones that fill up the back end. Because there's a lot of teams that that was pretty much notable for the Red Sox. I think you kind of alluded to this in your preamble that 
um, a lot of other teams had their top prospects already noted in this first wave of player pools. But the Red Sox, minus any prospects like Dahlbach, who are already on the 40-man, really didn't list any of those guys yet. Right. So you would have to assume a solid chunk of that last 13 is going to be those guys. Yeah, I would hope so, because uh, I, I am really concerned about the prospect of those guys not getting any work. And I don't really know what the alternative to do with players like that. Like, w- what do they do with, with those guys? You know, like, where work out is, on their own? Yeah, like, where is Gilberto Jimenez going to play? You know, like, it's... It's weird. There's a lot of guys, especially thinking about Lowell last year. You know, we talked about Lowell so much on this podcast, you know, because it was such an interesting level. Um, what are those guys going to do? Is is it really just they're just going to treat it like a missed season and work out on their own? I guess that's it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's been some spring training facilities that have been open to folks, but I don't think they're like – team overlooked workouts it's just like hey the facility is here if you would like to make use of it Hmm. and i think that's what ended up with like the phillies had like six people test positive at their spring training facility i think that's what that was from so maybe that's what the red sox do they open up their spring training facility for people who just want to work out on their own but it's still i mean it doesn't equate to a season of development with actual coaches and playing games yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And and then also the the other thing that we have to think about too is like say they do end up bringing up a guy to the major league bullpen who is being used as a starter, like a Brian Mata or something like that. Yeah. You know, if you still want to keep that guy as a starter for next year, um you got to make sure that in addition to the innings that they're getting there that they're like throwing more when they're not in the bullpen or else like they're going to have to be a reliever next year too, just because of workload issues. So I'm a little confused about the whole thing, but one of the things that I was also thinking about when I was listening to, to Callis talk is just that like, there's probably going to be a whole lot of simulated baseball being played like live BP amongst these taxi squads. I have to think to just get these, these arms, some innings. Yeah, I mean, you have to, right? I mean, the only other way is just have them throw off a side mound. I don't know if that's great work or whatever mound they can fashion at their place of residence. Yeah. You kind of have to put that stuff together. Yeah, they got to do something. That's for sure. It's a very interesting uh, problem. And, you know, I, I, I think that minor league fans especially and prospect nerds and i think we'd both count ourselves amongst that group are going to be uh having a lot less information to go off of next year you know that we always look for those particular players and organizations to make that leap uh, between different years and sometimes that leap is very substantial and and not getting to see that growth this year is one of the things i think i'm going to miss most about baseball and most about the minor leagues not playing yeah, that's the the minor leagues one. Is just there's so much that hurts with the minor league system, apart from like players actually losing development. That I'm pretty concerned, but 
you and I are both fans of minor league baseball, so maybe other folks don't feel the same. But just keep the minors in mind. That's all. Yeah. Well, while we're keeping the minors in mind, we are going to move on to the major league roster, and we are going to start projecting what the Red Sox lineup uh, may look like when you see it on uh, the opening weekend uh, of the uh, July 24th. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about our starting lineups, Keaton. Our starting lineups were essentially the same. Um, we both had Vasky as our catcher. Uh, at first base, we both had Moreland. Um, you had Chavis as the starter. I had Peraza. I think those guys will sh- basically split time. We can talk about that in a minute as well. Um, we both had Bogey. Both had Devers at shortstop and third base. In left field, Ben Intendi. Center field, Jackie Bradley Jr. Right field, we both had the newly healthy Alex Verdugo. That's been one benefit of this, uh, you know, nonsense going on with COVID. Uh, and then designated hitter, we both have J.D. Martinez. Um, two things I want to focus on. Uh, first thing I want to focus on, how much of a boost to this lineup is it that Alex Verdugo is in right field rather than Kevin Pillar to start the year? I think it's a huge boost. Um, Verdugo is certainly a candidate to be a leadoff hitter, and having a a strong on-base presence at the top of the order um, versus Pilar, who is not so strong at getting on base at the bottom of the order, is pretty significant. I mean, the lineup itself, um, I mean, we talked about this like all last season because um, it's essentially the same lineup. That was never really the weak point of the team. They'll score runs, and uh, having Verdugo there is obviously, uh, no, it's no Mookie, but significant upgrade on Pilar being in the, in the lineup every day. So I think that is a pretty big boost if, as as long as we're kind of like expecting him to be at the top of the order. Yeah, uh, Verdugo is a really nice player. I don't know whether or not they'll hit him lead off right away. I really would like to see him in that position <clears throat> because of how uncomfortable uh, Benintendi looked there. Um, but it yeah. is really encouraging to see that he's 100%. But, you know, looking into his numbers a little bit more and specifically looking into his splits, the thing that I really like about Verdugo is that he hits lefties, he hits righties. There hasn't really been much of a discrepancy throughout his career in the minor leagues in that area. He's a really good defender. He's got a great arm. I mean, he's not Mookie Betts, but if you have to replace Mookie Betts with, you know, any young player in baseball, Verdugo would probably be up on that list pretty high of players who would be replacing him uh, here. And and he's only 24 years old. The plate discipline here is very rare. Um, I really like him. And I know that a lot of people were extremely down on Verdugo when he came here. And I I think part of that was, you know, the, the shenanigans off the field that he was involved with when he was like a teenager or something. Um, but the other part of that was just like the shock of Mookie being gone, I think, right. and and maybe not appreciating him for the prospect that he actually is. Yeah, I think I would agree. Um, all right, so the second thing I want to talk about is the uh, Verdug or the uh, Peraza, Chavis, Moreland uh, platoon, uh, and the reason I say it that way is because Chavis does expect to play in both places. And the way that this will probably work is, you know, Chavis is a righty, Moreland's a lefty, um, and uh, Peraza is a righty, 
Um, you know, times when they want right-handed bats in the lineup, Moreland is going to sit. Chavis is going to play alongside Peraza. Um, I don't know who they're going to play at second base with lefties. I think probably they're going to play Peraza instead of Chavis. What is your thought on that? My thought is that it should be Chavis. Chavis should be given the maximum amount of at-bats possible. How has Javis done against lefties in his career? Do you know? I do not. You know, is it just a matter of like you think but that that's be... the more effective bat in the lineup and they need the bat? Or like what is it about Chavis over Peraza? Everything. He's just, <laughs> he's just so great. But against lefties, we would expect Chavis to be at first, right? Are they, they going to throw Moreland out there against a lefty? No, I, I think. Oh, so I said that the incorrect way. I meant opposite. So when Chavis... Oh, against the ready. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so when Moreland <clears throat> is in there, who's playing second? Yeah, I mean, I, if it were me, it would be Chavis. Um, given his upside, I think um, we kind of know what Peraza is, and Chavis, to me, is just a more exciting player. He's a younger player, still developing. He's only had one partial season in the major league level i know that he has his struggles with fastballs but it's not gonna get any better if he doesn't see him yeah and the other thing that you know gives me some hope that it could be chavis and i do think that the team is going to go with peraza more often just because he's the sure glove but like i was not upset with chavis's defense at second base last year i thought it was just fine and I do think that the the bat has such a higher uh, ceiling potential than Peraza's bat. Um, but man, if, if Chavis gets into those streaks where he can't hit a fastball, I think it's going to be really tempting for Ron Renicky to play Peraza. Yeah, you might be right. I would be disappointed in it. But... You are probably right. It's probably just my overzealousness for Chavis that I had him in there as the, I guess, well, starter in our mock lineup here versus on the bench. But I think he'll, he's still probably going to get plenty of at-bats and get it on the head that it's really like a three-man rotation between those two positions and those three guys. So they'll all probably end up with the at-bats that they need. In terms of um, overall playing time for the year, if you had to rank those three players in terms of at-bats, number of at-bats that they will end up with by the end of the year, what would be your ranking in terms of most to least at-bats between those three players? Mm, good question. I'll tell you what mine is um, right now before, as you're thinking about it. Mine would be uh, Chavis first. I do actually think he's going to end up with the most at-bats. Uh, I would have Peraza second, and I think Moreland's going to be a distant third here. Oh, wow. So initially I thought Moreland, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, Chavis, Chavis is playing two positions. The other guys are playing one. Then right. Chavis will probably get the most. Um, that is interesting that you think Moreland is a distant third. Why do you think that? I think he's limited. Um, you know, I, I think that you're going to see his bat in the lineup only about half the time and maybe as a late-inning defensive replacement uh, on days that he doesn't start. But I think that Chavis 
and Peraza both have so much more positional flexibility because, um, you know, we know that Chavis is going to be splitting time between first and second base, but we also know that Peraza has the ability to sub in for Xander Bogarts at shortstop. We know that Peraza has also played the, the outfield, so he can do that if they need him to. I just he think there's play a little, a little bit, bit more. At first. Peraza did? Yeah. Wow, that's super weird because he's not it that tall, weird. but um, <laughs> that's funky. Hopefully he doesn't play I don't think it's much, first. but I definitely remember him having first base eligibility at one of his stops here. I think it was Cincinnati. Oh. He had like second base, first base, and outfield eligibility. It was weird. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. We might have to uh, monitor that as the season goes on to, to see who's actually getting more playing time, but that's interesting. Um, let's move on to our benches here. Um, for my bench, I went with Michael Chavis, Sue Whalen, Kevin Plawecki, Jonathan Lucroy, who was not on that 47-man, um, but is working out a contract and will be added. Um, Jonathan Arose, uh, Kevin Pilar, and you had Kevin Pilar, Jose Peraza, Jonathan Lucroy, Sue Wei Lin, Jonathan Arouse. Um, the only player that you are missing is Kevin Pulwecki. Um So let's talk Pulwecki first. Where's Pulwecki going? Taxi squad. Interesting. Okay. Tell me why. Well, um, I think that, I mean, initially I was surprised that Luke Roy was left off this initial list, but then the news kind of came out about his um, contract-ish that was just being worked out, so he was going to be added. Um, I think to start, especially with all of these double headers, Red Sox pitching is bad, and they kind of need – all that they can. So that was where the I left one uh, one man off the bench and added another pitcher. Um, so I think it was just more of that need. They have Vasquez. They'll have Luke Roy. I don't think they need a third catcher unless one of them gets hurt. And I think they need a pitcher a lot more. I think Poeki's he's out of options though. I think if they don't have him on the active roster. He's exposed to waivers, isn't he? Well, they've got two other catchers on the that they've already announced. So, so you think they'd be comfortable having to expose him if they had to? It's only on a one-year deal, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Free agent they picked up, so yeah. I'd say that seems like it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I have them keeping both just because the organization is just so damn thin at catcher. Um, you know, we just don't have a lot in the minor leagues right now. Um, and I, I think that it's getting better with guys like Connor Wong coming into the system, but it's still really thin. Um, I think they find a way to carry both of them. And I do think that catching in a 60-game season in 66 days is going to be something where, like, resting guys is going to be important but at the same time you know i get what you're talking about because having an another pitcher there is definitely more attractive than a guy who's only going to play once or twice a week at the catcher position and can really only play the catcher position because i don't see Pulecki and lucroix really bouncing around to other positions very much uh we've seen christian vasquez do it a little bit, but I don't think that's really part of what I envisioned for this team. Yeah, I mean, you may be right. I just, I guess, 
Maybe I'm uh, overcompensating for the pitching. I don't know, man. I'm green with you. Of, yeah, it seems like a an just an excess of having three catchers in this kind of scenario. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Totally get that. Um, okay, let's move on to the rotation. Real quick on Peraza. It was oh. I was wrong. It was five games at third. It was the other corner. Oh, okay. I could see third. That makes <clears> a lot more sense considering yeah. Peraza's height. He also has an inning and a third pitching with a perfect zero ERA. Oh so, wow! For what that's worth, maybe he uh, maybe he becomes that extra pitcher. Well, yeah, that is not uh, banned this year. So uh, position players can pitch in this shortened season. All right, uh, moving on to the rotation. Uh, I only named four starters here. You named yeah. five. Um, and we only had three that were the same. We only had three that were the same. So we both had Erod, <laughs> both had Ivaldi, both had Martin Perez. I had Ryan Weber as my fourth, uh, who's a righty. And you had um, Brian Johnson, who is not on the 40 man right now. Uh, and Colin McHugh, uh, a lefty and a righty rounding out your rotation. Um, Keaton, what made you go with those two? And do you really think it's going to be a five-man rotation to start the year? Sure. I want to say not. I mean, the, the plan is to have a, like a bunch of doubleheaders. Uh, and that was really the, the motivation, kind of just a continuation of what we just talked about with the pitching and maybe like three catchers being excess. I think Brian Johnson will be added. There's enough of those like bottom, like we touched on in the beginning, those like bottom of the list relievers that they can can kind of take off the 40 man and wouldn't really hurt anybody uh, and add brian johnson who's someone that they know can get them five innings maybe six on a good day and they're going to need those guys if there's a lot of double headers and 60 games in 66 days they're going to need those innings so i think johnson will get added and they'll use him as a starter and then i think they're also going to give McHugh a chance to start yeah, I, I definitely think that once McHugh uh, is healthy and in the mix and able to to go multiple innings, that he's going to start. I know he's been working through those elbow issues, so I think my hesitation for putting him on the rotation was more about health rather than him being one of the best options. Because I actually think that McHugh healthy is on par with Martin Perez in terms of like being in the in the running to be a three starter on this team. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, I think I would agree. I would feel a little bit better about McHugh than Perez. I know that 
Um, you're you feel very optimistic about Perez and learning that new pitch that he'll be able to kind of put some things together. I don't feel great about it. <laughs> so that's fair. Um, but I think you're right. I mean those those two guys are really would be like the battling for who would be the third starter. You know, I was listening to the uh, Pitcher List podcast this weekend with uh, Alex Fast and, and uh, Nick Pollock, and one of the things they were joking about is Martin Perez Cy Young season uh, this year. So that uh, that gave me a chuckle because of our conversations about Martin <laughs> Perez. <laughs> and in a 60-game season, man, weird stuff is going to happen. I mean, we're going to see pitchers that go undefeated. We're going to see really weird streaks of like guys like Ryan Weber who have no business, you know, being uh, a good player, um, you know, actually yeah. uh, pitching really well. Um, so it's going to be weird. It is. That's why I think a lot of it really weighs on Evaldi because if he struggles, then they really only have one legitimate starter and we know he's, just a wet mound away from missing 60 days. But if Evaldi is a solid starter, him and Erod, I mean, that's that's a one-two punch that you can kind of you'd be able to throw up against a lot of other teams. Maybe not like the Yankees or Tampa Bay or Washington or a lot of the teams that they're going to end up playing this season. <laughs> but... I think a lot is going to end up just riding on Evaldi. He's got a lot on his shoulders here this short season. So I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, me being conscious of time, I was about to move on from the rotation here. But I think it is really worth talking about what 60-game Evaldi could look like. Because we've seen Evaldi get on a stretch where he just looks like a guy who actually deserves to be the number two starter on a contending baseball team. Like that's how good Eovaldi can look. Uh, We saw it in the playoffs in 2018 and kind of down the stretch. Um, When he's on, he's dominant, man. Um, It wouldn't shock me to see him have an outrageously good season. No, wouldn't shock me either. And that and it would, seemed like he was kind of trending that way. He, had, I mean, I know it's spring training, and you kind of have to take those things with a grain of salt. But he did look tremendous in the you know minimal time he was out there before everything got shut down. So let me ask you this, Keaton. Given the lineup, we both think this Red Sox lineup is pretty damn good. And by war projections for this lineup, like baseball projections in general, think this is a top five lineup in the American League, and. I don't think we'll get much debate. I mean, even without Mookie Betts, this thing's stacked. But looking at yep. that rotation, if we get healthy Erod, healthy Eovaldi, and improved Martin Perez, and if we get a healthy Colin McHugh, this team could make some noise this year. I would agree with you if they weren't also playing the NL East. It's a tough division. With those, like, bubbled regions and it's the AL East and NL East together, I think they're the seventh best team. (laughs) I think there's, like, I think the Mets, the Phillies, the Nationals, and the Braves are all better than the Red Sox, and that puts them kind of in, like, a middle tier. I would say the Yankees and Rays are with them, and it's those six, and then the Red Sox. And then probably a bit of a gap 
Toronto, and then a massive gap at Baltimore and Miami. So the one thing I'll say, though, is I agree with you that they're more likely to be towards the middle of that group than they are towards the top of it, definitely on paper. However, you know, the difference between a 90-win team and an 80-win team in a 60-game season is only like a game or two in any sort of direction. So there's more variance that we could get here in a shortened 60-game season. So one of the things that we're probably going to see is a a pretty tight grouping at the top. It's going to be hard for a team to really step on the gas and run away with this thing. So the Red Sox really only might need to win, like, I don't know, three to five games that they really shouldn't win in order for this thing to, like, get pretty interesting. Yeah, and you have certainly been the optimistic one on this pod. So I'm not, I'm not shocked that that's your view. I just don't – it seems still seems like a lot of things that need to break right. Like, Evaldi needs to progress like we think he's going to progress. Perez needs to, like, really be a new pitcher with this, this new pitch. McHugh needs to be healthy, which is something he hasn't been in a pretty long time. The bullpen also needs to kind of take a step forward because we know that Workman and Barnes are all right, but the rest is – kind of a shit show and they're going to be called upon pretty heavily in this so i think while i definitely see your scenario playing out i think i'm not quite as optimistic that that may be a true outcome that's fair and i don't know you know why i'm still the optimism guy on this team but you know (laughs) i've i've kind of really dug dug my heels in as optimism guy and i guess i'm just rolling with it at this point but yeah i'm just happy to get some baseball honestly Hopefully yep. it's for a while. Um, all right, let's move to the bullpen. Um, and it is worth mentioning as well that teams have a tremendous amount of flexibility as to what they can do with their bullpen. Um, teams are not limited by the number of bullpen arms that they can carry. So if the Red Sox conceivably wanted to carry 18 pitchers, um, they could. Uh, I currently have them carrying 15 pitchers um, with four starters and 11 pitchers in the bullpen. Uh, You currently have them carrying uh, 16 pitchers with five starters and 11 in the bullpen. Um, And our bullpens look like this. Um, My bullpen is Brandon Workman, Matt Barnes, Darwinson Hernandez, Josh Taylor. Um, Those are the four that are pretty universally locked in. Uh, Then Ryan Brazier. Marcus Walden, Colin McHugh, Austin Bryce, Colton Brewer, those are all righties, Matt Hall, a lefty, and then Chris Mazza, a righty. Um, And when I was building my bullpen, I'm just going to give my kind of rundown of this before we move to yours, because I think yours has some more interesting pieces on it. Um, You know, Colin McHugh, uh, Matt Hall, Chris Mazza, even uh, Colton Brewer, to some degree, and Marcus Walden are all guys, even Darwins and Hernandez, uh, that we've seen go multiple innings and have that capability. And so when I was putting together this bullpen, I was thinking of not just the guys who you know are, are locks and who are really good pitchers at the back end of the bullpen, but I'm thinking about guys who have the capability to go multiple innings because I'm really just not sure what pitcher workload is going to like th- look like this year. And so I, I think if I'm building a pen, 
I want as many guys who can go two or three innings even uh, if they are called upon to do so. And, you know, I do have three lefties with Darwin's in Josh Taylor and Chris Mott uh, and Matt Hall, I should say. Um, but I think the focus was definitely the ability to go more innings. Yeah, and I think that's probably the way you had kind of had to look at it, especially with going with four starters to make up for that with guys that, you know, as a bullpen can put together a day going multiple innings. So it's probably the way that you constructed your 30 man. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, who did you have on your, your bullpen? Workman, Barnes, Darwinsman, Darwinson, Weber, Taylor, Walden, Brazier, Bryce. And then my, I guess my descents from you were Osich, Schwarin, and Brewer. Uh, I had Brewer as well. Oh, yeah. There he is. All right. So then I guess it was just Osich and, and Schwarin. Okay. So I went with Osich because there was a balloon signing lefty, and I needed to <clears throat> add another lefty to my bullpen. And I just went with Schwarin. I, I guess, I mean, I wouldn't really be bummed, but... He has gone multiple innings in the past, so maybe they can use him there. I, I guess I don't really feel strongly about that one either way. So it could be him or somebody else. But uh, I think the other 10 made sense. Yeah, I, I think so too. And, and I actually do think that the Osich choice makes more sense for you uh, than the Maza choice uh, than it would to choose Maza like I did um, because Osich gives them another lefty and Maza was one of the guys that in the spring was given uh, innings as an opener whereas Osich was used just as a straight reliever and the way yep. you built your team like we were talking about the differences in our construction I mean you had the traditional five man where I was going off of one game a week pretty much being a bullpen game uh, at least one game a week being a bullpen game. So it makes sense that, you know, I would I would have be a little bit more heavy on the Mazda type guys. It is worth noting that neither of us chose uh, Kyle Hart or Jeffrey Springs, who also were used in that opener role during the spring training. So I initially had um, Hart on there, and then I realized that I had 31, and I, I don't remember what the... What my miss? Oh, I think it maybe was McHugh was my miss before. Mm. So he would be next up on my list that maybe flopping him in instead of Schwarin makes sense. But I think he has a good shot to to crack that thirty. Wouldn't shock me if he was left off or or if he was on it. Yeah, and, and one of the things that I also noticed about your lineup here is that you went with a team that was much more. Uh, traditional Red Sox guys, like guys that we are familiar with, plus Osich and Bryce. And I threw on a whole bunch of the new guys with Maza and Hall and Bryce. Um, so I guess I went with one more of the the Bloom era guys versus two of the Bloom era guys for you. Yeah. Um, I, I will say this, though, Keaton. I think that the Bloom era guys are the guys that I'm most concerned about being on the chopping block come time to trim this roster down two weeks into the season. Like, I kind of think that 
you know, whether it's your Osiches, I, I, I would actually throw Mike Schwarin and Ryan Brazier, uh, who we both actually, I didn't have Schwarin, but I had Brazier. I think those two plus the, the other signings by Bloom are going to be the guys that like are, they're going to be taking some pretty hard looks at because there's not really a lot of track record with those guys. And I think the relievers could be the thing that is interchanged on these rosters, you know, with, with significant frequency. Yeah. And there certainly isn't much separating them in terms of talent. So I mean, we could be spot on with this and we could be wildly off right. just because of the, there really isn't much. I mean, there's like Workman and Barnes are in kind of a tier of their own. Darwin's in maybe a little bit below, at least in terms of like belief that he'll be like a, a shutdown. And then I don't really don't think there's much separating the rest at all. Yeah, I would say I would say Taylor and Walden are are two guys I feel pretty confident with. Like, if I had to bet on five guys, it would definitely be those five um, with Taylor and Walden on the back end. But you're right. I mean, if if we take that group of Brazier, Bryce, Brewer, Hall, Maza, Schwarin, Osich, eh, who the hell really knows? Colton Brewer, throw him in the mix. Who knows? It's all going to be yeah. dependent on what the hell they do. For sure. Okay. Um, so that's what we think that is going to look like. Let's get to some listener questions because we had some really interesting ones today. Um, oh, before we get to that too, um, the way that this is going to work too, I don't know if I mentioned this at the top of the show, but the team's taxi squad and uh, the actual teams, they're going to be doing their spring training uh, in – Fenway, but they're also going to be using the facilities at Boston College and at Pawtucket uh, McCoy uh, for that. So they're going to be kind of flipped between those three places. Not that's a huge consideration, but just wanted to let people know. All right. So the next question or the first question comes from the Around the Diamond podcast. And he says, if you were in charge of advertising for the MLB, what things would you change slash add to make the game better and more entertaining? Well, I mean, marketing their top players is one. Like I remember, I can't remember if it was the postseason thing. I think it was the postseason like graphic from MLB last year. Like had Bregman, Altuve, uh, no Mookie, no Acuna, or de- definitely no Soto. Um, oh, what a mistake. <clears throat> I think it might have had Albies and Acuna and then like Eddie Rosario and left off guys like Mookie, Scherzer, Strasburg, Soto, um, Bellinger. Uh, the way that MLB just cho- chooses to highlight players is so confusing. And like they're just criminally negligent in marketing trout. Like Mike Trout should be known to the world. He's not. And that just is kind of baffling. But they also choose to admit, like, th- like on that postseason graphic, there was not a single member of the Red Sox. Um, and how you could leave Mookie, who was at that time the reigning MVP, off like that. I just don't understand. So it's baffling the way that Emily just chooses to advertise themselves in general. But that would be the biggest change. I would just advertise our best players way more. Yeah, I agree. And and there was a time, uh, you know, many years ago when MLB players, 
you know, being one of the sports that doesn't put a helmet on, they're very visible to the fans. There's a lot of individualism within Major League Baseball. It is possible to make Major League Baseball players into super duper stars. And I think the most recent one was probably Ken Griffey Jr., who was a super duper A-list athlete star. Um, but yeah, generally they do a really terrible job of that. And I agree with you. And the thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about this was the let the kids play campaign. Remember that? How they were all like, I do remember that. that yay, individuality. But then they're talking out of, you know, both sides of their mouth because they're like, yeah, bat flips. But at the same time, they're still like not suspending players who drill you in the side when you do a bat flip. You know, they're yeah. letting the old guard still continue to to run baseball. And I thought that Ian Desmond, I don't know if you checked out his Instagram piece. I did. That was very well written. It was. And, and he mentioned that. I mean, there's just such a pervasive sort of culture of this old school, like can't celebrate, can't be an individual uh, type thing that's going on. And I think that it really, um, it hurts the, the viewers, you know, the viewers ability to see that exciting stuff. When I think about like some of the most exciting plays of my lifetime, I'm thinking about like, uh, Jose Bautista and his like epic playoff bat flip and the Mookie it's time to party thing. And I'm thinking about like, uh, uh, the uh, playoffs last year for Juan Soto and just like, how fearless he was, David Ortiz, um, you know, everything that he did. Uh, It's just like, I'm thinking about guys like that. And you're right. It's kind of puzzling how MLB, like they know that they should promote it, but they just can't get themselves to like stop acting like it's 1940. Yeah. And as an extension of that, you mentioned the old guard. I mean, the postseason coverage and commentary is just riddled Ugh. with guys like that, that so are, bad you know protect the integrity of the game and don't have fun and you have to be grumpy and miserable all the time get rid of all of that yeah i want guys who are enthusiastic about that type of play i want guys who are enthusiastic about stat cast and like moonshot home runs and slick defensive plays and celebrations on the field and handshakes and like I want people to watch this game and talk to me about it like they're kids, you know? Yeah. I want that. That's what makes Eckersley so great as a commentator. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Nobody doesn't take X seriously. We know that he knows the game. You know that he's going to give it to you straight. But we also know that he's going to show you exactly what he's feeling and what he appreciates and and what he likes. So, yeah, that's a great, great uh, consideration uh, there. I think we're, we're definitely in agreement with each other on how to make make this game better and then the the other thing like ian desmond was saying in in his post too and i think this is something that mlb knows and just still is doing a pretty bad job of and it comes on the the year that is the 100th anniversary of the negro leagues but you know major league baseball needs to be way better about marketing a game towards people of you know different uh, races and you know ethnicities and and all that stuff because the game just is too white especially in this country uh, and there's just so many people that just don't have the opportunity to and, and I thought Ian Desmond's point was really poignant because he was talking about the prohibitive costs of travel ball and 
you know, the showcase circuit and all these things. And I mean, it's true. Like I have younger brothers who, you know, play on travel AAU teams and, and go to the showcases and do all that stuff. And like, it costs my parents a ton of money. And you can imagine that there are plenty of kids that just don't have that option. Um, and when we, when I read about, you know, doing this historic Red Sox project that I've been doing, when I read about the starts that a lot of the greatest players in the history of baseball have gotten, I mean, it's been on backfields and it's been playing for Legion teams and it's been doing things that don't cost a whole ton of money. So if Major League Baseball wants to survive, it's it's got to start investing in people that don't have the wherewithal uh, to, you know, or I shouldn't say the wherewithal, the resources to, you know, afford all these crazy things. Yeah, I would like to see if MLB is serious about contracting the minor leagues, and it seems like they are, and they're kind of using this as an opportunity, as a stepping point, like we talked about before, to invest in youth leagues instead if they're going to take that funding away from the minors to grow the game at a youth level and i don't feel confident that they will but that is you're right i mean that's a massive opportunity that they need to be much much better at yeah yeah absolutely um and just big time props to him for you know just making that decision like yeah. i'm gonna stay home and i'm gonna actually work on this problem in my own community um it's just really cool from him yeah um, CJ Roberts has our next question. He says, why do many owners hate baseball? Kind of get this one last week from someone too, but I don't think you got a chance to answer this. So I'll give it to you, Keaton. No. Yeah. My take is that all of these owners made their billions of dollars somewhere else. So if baseball goes away, they still have billions of dollars of income and they won't become poor. And so they try and exploit that over the players who they know, like, Great baseball players won't be able to make the same amount of money doing anything else but being great at baseball. And so that's their big bargaining chip. Like, if baseball goes away, John Henry still has a racing team, a championship soccer team in Europe, and everything else that he built up prior to taking over the Red Sox. So, it's all skin off his back. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. There's just not as much incentive. Um yeah, it sucks, man. The owners suck. All these guys are <clears throat> kind of trash. Uh, Matt Kitson has our next question. He says, over the past 15 years, who do you think are among the most underappreciated or underrated Red Sox uh, players among the fans and media? Uh, so Keaton and I loved this question, and we actually spent like a decent amount of time going through the rosters in the last 15 years to come up with some of our answers. Uh, and I think, what did we each come up with? Four guys? Three guys? Yeah. Um, you want to kick us off? Who'd you go with? Sure. My first one was actually a guy that I wrote about in the roundtable of uh, like underdogs or underappreciated. Because this, this was a theme week for us. Um, and it was basically the last 20 years. And Jason Bay, for me, he was here for a season and a half, and it was the best baseball he ever played. And I don't think people even remember that he was on the team. And it was essentially him. I mean, it's hard to, to put like a, a good season on one guy, but as much of a season as you can put on one guy in baseball, he was the reason that the 2009 Red Sox were in the playoffs. And it, I mean, it was all because of him. Yeah, what was his and line he, that year? <clears throat> he had like 36 homers, um, really good average. 
Uh, he was the only one, I think, on the entire team that had, like, more than 20 homers. Wow. Had, like, 119 RBIs. It was one of Ortiz's weird down years. Um, cause he was having, like, foot problems, something like that. And he just, he just, <laughs> it was by far the best year of his career. And when he got to the playoffs, he was the only one that got on base more than once on the entire roster. Hmm. So I just, Jason Bay to me is a guy that just, I mean, it was a short stint. Obviously a year and a half is really hard to, um, you know, like dig in, but I'll, I'll die on that hill. Jason Bay being a great Red Sox player. Yeah. Yeah. That's a hell of a line that he put up that year. It's 36, 103, 119 and 13. That's a yeah. full, that's a full stat line, Jason Bay. Yeah. Um, for me, my first guy, uh, and guy who I, is just always stands out as one of my favorite baseball players in Red Sox history. It's Bill Miller, who was with the team in 03, 04, 05. Uh, played 406 games over that time period, uh, period slash 303, 378, 474, while playing good defense at third base. Uh, won a batting title in 2003, batting 326 that year. Um, just such a solid hitter. Um, really a professional hitter had had the best year of his career in 2003 which was probably the most important year to me in me becoming like a fanatic Red Sox fan and then you know yeah. 2004 solidified it for me obviously um, but yeah I, I think watching him was just one of my favorite things I, I just loved the way he carried himself defensive presence and then you know, to be a 300 hitter for the three years he was here, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was a really good one. And he also had, like, legit moments. Like, obviously, he had the hit that drove in Dave Roberts in 04. Uh, he also hit a walk-off grand slam off Rivera. Um, he was as much of a Yankee killer as, like, Trot Nixon was. And yeah. he, he doesn't really get remembered as such. And even, I mean, he was the one that, like, he had the hit that drove in Dave Roberts, where Dave Roberts gets all of the all the shine for being able to steal second. <laughs> yeah, people forget people that. forget that. He can steal second all he wants. If Bill Miller strikes out, that doesn't matter. <laughs> um, fun, fun Bill Miller fact here before we move on. In the postseason in 2004 that you're talking about, he only struck out 3.1% of the time. Uh, over 14 games and batted 321, 406, uh, 375 during that time period. So he was an extremely tough out uh, during that postseason, like you said. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll snake this. I'll go with my second guy here, and then we'll go back to you. Um, sure. My second choice um, was a guy who was with the Red Sox from 2003 to 2008 as a reliever, uh, and that is Mike Timlin, um, who over that eight-year span had a 3.76 ERA. Um, you know, he only had 27 saves over that time period, but he had a ton of holds. Uh, and in fact, during that time period, uh, he had, I want to say 100 exactly, but let me add this up. Uh, no, he had 90, uh, 90 holds plus 27 saves. So 117 holds plus saves over that time period. Uh, it seemed like Mike Timlin just got so many important outs. 2005 was probably his best season here. 2.24 ERA, over 80 innings pitched. He was an absolute horse out of the bullpen. Um, but if you actually, the interesting thing that I learned while doing some research on my my 
bullpen for the all-time roster. If you combine holds plus saves, uh, Mike Timlin actually had more holds plus saves than both Koji Uehara and Craig Kimbrell uh, did in their time period here. Uh, so that is a pretty impressive fact about a guy who was pretty underrated bullpen arm for me. I think what I remember most about Timlin is the massive lip he'd have packed on the mound. Oh yeah, thing's huge. But that is a that is a good one. You're absolutely right about him being very underrated. <clears throat> My second guy is JD Drew, who uh, I have mentioned. And I think Jake, too, previously on the pod, is just one of the guys that just really annoyed us during his tenure with the Red Sox. And just for how he carried himself off the field, but when he was on the field, pretty solid player. And I, I know that I definitely don't give him enough credit. <laughs> but, I mean, his 2008 season, he basically walked just as much as he struck out, 17%. And it, he consistently had OBPs either over 400 or right at 400, and even with the Red Sox. Um, you know, 408 in that 2008 season, 392 in 2009. It was frustrating because there were times where he would take a big strikeout without even swinging, but he would also get on base a ton. And when he did swing, it was a pretty sweet lefty swing. So I know I certainly don't give him enough credit that I probably should. So my apologies to you, Mr. Drew. I love J.D. Drew now. Um, he's he's one of those guys that as I learned more about sabermetrics – I was like, oh, Theo, you sneaky boy. Like, I get what you did here. Um, And Theo was always this (laughs) staunch defender, right? He was like, no, no, I don't give a shit if he's hitting 30 bombs. I don't give a shit if he's driving in 100 runs. Like, look at how often this dude gets on base. And he put up some monster OBP years, too. And he could slug it. And he could get around on most people's fastballs. J.D. Drew, extremely underrated. Love that pick. Absolutely love it. And everybody in New England obviously forgives him because of that one hit that he had that, what was that, Grand Slam or home run? Grand Slam. Grand Slam, yeah. That was was the hit. Yeah. The hit that forgave the contract that was actually an excellent contract when you look at it. But, you know. Um, All right. My next guy is Hideki Okajima, uh, who was a lefty. For the Red Sox, uh, extremely important in the 07 World Series through 69 innings pitched that year, 2.22 ERA, and had an ERA under three the following year in 08. Um, trailed off a little bit uh, as his time went on here. He, he pitched really just the large part of four seasons. His fourth season in 2010, he only threw 46 innings pitched, and then just eight in 2011. But for that three-year stretch from 07, 08, and 09, uh, he was one of the better relievers that the Red Sox had. He was arguably the second best reliever on the team during that stretch. And he has a three 3.11 ERA over his time here with the Red Sox, over 246.1 innings pitched. Um, he was kind of a throwaway guy that they just got, and he ended up working out really well. Love Okajima has some of the better relief seasons in team history. Yeah, that's pretty solid. There's certainly a lot of relievers like that, like Timlin and Okajima, that could have been picked for this list. I didn't pick any of them, but you picked two really good ones. So, my third guy <clears throat> is uh, Rusny Castillo. And I know you, you've been anxious to hear my reasoning for this, <laughs> and I don't think they gave him enough of a run. Um, really, the only trial they gave him was in 2015, 80 games, 
Uh, he didn't do much with it. Uh, only five homers, four steals. But then they basically just banished him to AAA. And I think they were so mad that he was not Jose Abreu that they were just like, screw it. We're just <laughs> never going to see him appear in Fenway ever again. Like the last three seasons in AAA, he's hit 314, 319, and 287. Double digit steals, double digit homers. For him to like not even be the fourth outfielder on the Red Sox is kind of wild, even at like his price tag. Obviously, they weren't hurting for outfielders with uh, Benny, JBJ, and Betts past three seasons. But I mean, even as like a fourth outfielder, which is something that they have not had for a significant period of time. Um, was just kind of surprising to me. And I'm always, uh, like, really excited about the imports, like the Red Sox sign, like, Daisuke, or, like, some Japanese or Dominican and Cuban players get pretty excited about him. So I was excited about Ruzne, and then I don't think they ever gave him a chance. So I think he is one that, that is underappreciated. Is this going to be the year, Keaton, that we see some Ruzne? No. No, probably not. I don't think so. Right. Yeah, I guess that would that would make him he's done, right? Because he'd have to be added to the forty man. Oh, and this was the last year of his contract, and there's no minor league season, so I think that's it for him. Yeah, I think so. technically he had an option; he could have opted out this year, but you know, maybe giving up like twenty million bucks. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he didn't want to play that bad. Yeah, <laughs> he's gonna be a legend in Pawtucket, though. Yeah, and he's about to turn thirty three now, so it's. Now they got Pilar as the fourth outfielder. They actually have a fourth outfielder too. So not to mention Sue Aylin and Peraza can also play the outfield. So true. Probably not gonna play. And then my last one, I went with a manager, and I went with John Farrell. Um, he was wildly frustrating at the end, but to be to have three first place finishes, like the first ever back to back first place division finishes for a Red Sox manager ever. We definitely don't give Farrell enough credit. I mean, it ended badly, like really, really badly. Yeah. But we definitely don't give him enough credit for what he was able to do with that roster in in his five years. I think that's a really good one, Keaton. Um, Specifically because remember what an antidote John Farrell felt like when he came back here? Um, after being in Toronto because he was the pitching coach and then he left to Toronto to manage and then Bobby Valentine happened and once uh, the organization brought back John Farrell in 2013 we were just like oh my god this is the best thing ever yeah like a real manager is here and he's not actively trying to sabotage his own players this is amazing um, yeah, I agree with you. I, I think uh, the most painful thing about John Farrell was any time he had to talk to the public. Um, yeah. <laughs> because it was like super robotic and it it was like the anti-Tito. You know how like every press conference with Tito was like talking to your goofy uncle? Um, yeah. And you were just like, oh my God, I love this guy. He's amazing. He He's so smart about baseball, but he's also like a real human being I want to go have a beer with. Um, and then John Farrell was just like John Farrell manager bot 2000 who (laughs) said whatever he thought, you know, he was supposed to say at that given time period. And it just sounded ridiculous. Yeah. And like he would, 
act offended at like legitimate questions. Like when Ben Intendi, they had like back to back games getting thrown out on the bases, and someone brought up a very valid point. Like, do you think you should not be as aggressive as you are on the base pass? And he's like, "Well, that's your opinion. <laughs> our like our stuff says that's good, and we're we're generating more runs than we're scoring." And then like another reporter was like, "Lit like actual stats." Uh, say the exact opposite. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? It's like, well, stats are stats. <laughs> I mean, they're descriptive. They kind of you know, tell what's going on. So, yeah, he just he had his moments where he was just very frustrating and not didn't seem like he was just wanted to be there at times at the end. But it's it's really hard to take away what he did with the team. Yeah, that's a good one. Or and I do think I I underappreciate him. So I am really happy you brought that one up. Uh, my last yep. guy is a uh, center fielder for the Red Sox from 06 to 08. That is Coco Crisp. Um, Coco was awesome in a ton of different ways here. Um, he was not a power hitter by any means. Oh, my God, no. Um, his, <laughs> his, his home run total over three years was just 21 home runs. Um, but he stole 70 bags over those three years. Uh, he batted 271, 330. Um, but most importantly, I remember him for 2007. Uh, and during that year, he played in 145 games for the Red Sox, stole 28 bags, had his best base running season of his career, also had his best defensive season of his career. And it didn't really matter to me that he had an 85 WRC plus that year because he got key hits at key moments. Uh, he played otherworldly defense. He didn't have the best arm, but he got to every ball. Um, and he was just such a presence um, for the Red Sox. And I think for the pitchers especially, you know, guys like Josh Beckett loved having him back there. Um, he put up a quiet 4.4 win season, the best of his uh, second best of his career as well, um, and, and quietly produced a, a career of over 30 war. Um, and as you mentioned to me, as we were going through this, uh, the Matrix uh, moves when he avoided a James Shields punch that probably would have killed him on the field uh, during a fight <laughs> yeah. with James Shields. Yeah, Shields put everything he had into that. It was just the <laughs> awesome dodge and then to land the punch back was like an iconic Red Sox moment. Yeah, that picture, you know, it doesn't get enough love. Um the no. Veritech one of him, you know, putting his glove in A-Rod's face is in everybody's living room, but the yeah. the Coco uh, Matrix move is not, and it should be. Yeah, it absolutely should be. We need to <laughs> find excuses for Matt to use that more on the website. Yeah, for sure. It, it's, uh, it's our version of the uh, Amir Garrett picture that is just yeah, never going to stop circulating the internet. All right. Well, that was super fun. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, and I've lost my agenda. There it is. Um, that was Matt Kitson, who's asked many a good question on this show. And finally, our last uh, question comes from Boston Sports. And he says, how will the shortened season influence the Red Sox in terms of depth? We kind of outlined it. For me, it's, it's pitching. As many arms as they can fit. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you're going to see a tremendous amount of churn in the arms. Um, they have 24 arms right now on that 47-man roster. I expect them to add 
more arms uh, to that. I wouldn't be surprised if that total ends up being somewhere around 30 plus arms uh, by the end of it. Um, but yeah, expect to see a lot of different names at the back of that bullpen that you don't really care too much about. Maybe the cream will rise to the top. Who knows? All right. Well, that does it for this edition of the Red Seat Podcast. We do hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please go on and rate and review us wherever you get this podcast. And make sure you subscribe to us as well. Um, tell your friends and family that if they want to listen to a good Red Sox podcast, to tune into our show. We do appreciate that. Keaton, what are you working on these days over at the site? I've been I've just been doing the roundtables. I need to pick up something else besides just that. But I did, if you would like to uh, start preparing yourself for the season, I did do a piece on uh, Red Sox options for a leadoff hitter at the top of the order. Mm. Reviewed like four or five possible options. Obviously the most uh, probable being Benintendi and Verdugo, but I go into a little bit of detail about both of them and how they've done at the top and who should be the leadoff hitter. Um, so that was... Uh, way back in like March, but you can find it on the website. Awesome. Maybe, maybe I'll, I'll retweet that cool. so that we get uh, an easier way to then dig into the archive, but still relevant. So even more relevant now that Vertugo is healthy. Yeah, exactly. That is definitely relevant as we're about to start baseball. Um, for me, I uh, just wrote about Koji Uihara uh, yesterday as you're listening to this. Uh, he's the closer on my all-time roster, Red Sox team. And I only have five more players to go until this 40-man roster is complete uh, and written about. And that is the five members of the rotation. So I have my fifth starter dropping on Friday. And then I've got uh, two more weeks to complete it. And uh, I will finish the week before baseball opens up. So the timing on my part solid um definitely not intentional but anyhow check those out uh, there's a lot of them uh, we do hope you enjoyed the show and uh, we will be with you again at this same time next week um, and until then you can follow us both on twitter you can follow keaton at the spoken keats you can follow me at, at dev jake and you can follow the over the monster account at, at over the monster we'll see you next week <laughs>